you pray with me? Father God, we ask you to prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts firstly to receive your word. To comprehend it. To see it rightly, to feel the full weight of it all. And prepare our hearts for Christmas. That time set apart each year to remember the incarnation. The word becoming flesh. Father, we confess that we're going to fight you in this at times. As much as we want to submit fully to the Spirit's work in our life, that there is flesh and there is sin and there is fear and there is doubt. And sadly, at times there is shame that causes us to resist this good work that you're doing in us. So I pray, Father, that you would, by the working your mighty hand, you would strip away every bit of that. That you would overwhelm us with your goodness and your love. And that you would change us. Father, we trust that you will do this because we ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we continue this morning our Advent series of sermons. Asking God to set our heart and our minds right as I just prayed for the coming Christmas day. It already does feel a bit like Christmas. I shared with the group as we gathered on Sunday evening last week. It, it feels like Christmas and some of the people on some of the folks on our staff, they quipped. Well, that's because you're actually talking about Christmas. You actually allowed us. To set our hearts on Christmas. You've not gotten in the way of God's plan for this Advent season. And I I say a hearty amen to that. As I told you last week, my my goal is not just that we would we would look forward to Christmas morning, but that we would make certain by the working of his word that we don't miss Jesus in all of it. Not just miss his name, but miss his person and his work. Don't misunderstand who is this one that is that has come. So we continue with that this morning, and you'll recall that last week we went all the way back before the foundations of the earth. Back beyond Bethlehem, back beyond even the creation of time and space and matter, four thousand years before that, but before there was any of those things, we went back in John one one, in the beginning was The word. When the beginning came, the word already was. He had always been the eternal word and that he is the one who has come in the flesh. So this morning, the question we seek to answer is, why on earth would he come? Why would the eternal and infinitely glorious son of God step down from heaven into this sin stained and broken world? Why has he come? Well, the answer is easy. David just read it to us. For this reason has the Son of God come, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see, if we don't 
understand the purpose in his coming, and we're very likely to miss who he is and, and what he did. So this morning, we're going to go right back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, Genesis 3. We're going to ask, what were these works of the devil that Christ Jesus came to destroy? Now, I've got to warn you, Genesis chapter 3 is my favorite chapter in all the Bible. That may sound strange to some of you, because isn't that the one where everything went off the rails? Isn't that the chapter that tells us about the fall of man? And it is. But you see, I I relish any of those passages of Scripture, any opportunities that God gives us to understand why things are the way that they are. Why am I like this? And why is the world like this? And why do marriages fall apart? And why do people die? And why are there wars? And why is it so hard for me to do the things that God has called me to do? See, I I celebrate and I, I love those opportunities God gives us to see why things are the way that they are. That's why I love Romans 1 so much as well. I refer to that chapter maybe more than any other in the scriptures. It tells us what is the root of sin? What's the true basis of sin? But Why I say that Genesis 3 is my favorite and not Romans 1 is because in it, we see one of the most glorious promises of hope in all the scripture. The first gospel, the proto-euangelion, that first promise of the coming Christ, right here in the very beginning, right as things go off the rails. I've heard men say before that the whole of scripture is just a playing out of the promise of Genesis 3.15. I would add to this, not just the whole of scripture, but the whole of history. Literally, the things that we are living out right now are the sovereign God of the universe working out a promise that he made to Adam and Eve way back when. So it's critical that we understand this text. Now, some of you that have fallen in love with Genesis chapter three, as I have, there's no way you're not going to leave here disappointed because we can't cover it all. We're going to have to move at a fairly swift pace. But again, as last week, I'm trusting the spirit of God to take the word of God, apply it to the people of God and to do his work. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We read together Genesis, the third chapter. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you have given to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man out of the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed his cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All God's people said, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to set the stage just a bit, you know what led us here. First two chapters of the book of Genesis, we find the God of the universe creating everything that is out of nothing. Not beginning with anyone else's stuff. And we see a bit of a pattern here, right? On days one, two, and three, it seems as though God is creating spaces. He's creating the heavens above and then he's separating the waters below from the waters above to create sky and sea. Then he's bringing together the dry land with plants and trees and all such things. Then the next three days, he puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the space that is above. Then he puts the birds in the the air above and the fish in the sea below. And then finally, he creates every creepy, crawly thing, the beasts of the field and the bugs that are there. But we know that he wasn't yet done because there was left his crowning jewel, the ultimate of his creation, namely us, man. Those who were to be made in the image of God, exercising his dominion as his vice region over all creation. We were to subdue it as God's true representative here in his creation. This is how he made them, male and female. As a gift, he gave the people over to each other. He caused the man to fall asleep, and then from his rib, he brought forth a woman, a perfect helpmate. Now, you remember that Adam didn't ask for a wife. You see, God created in the man the need 
The desire, that's what God does. He gives us desires and then he meets those desires in ways that only he can. And we, we see there the first ever love song, maybe the greatest and purest love song ever, because, you know, for Adam, this woman was literally the only one on earth. He says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you have these people in this perfect place with every need they could ever have being met. This man with this perfect wife and this wife with this perfect man, they have the perfect marriage. And and they're living there in perfect communion with a perfect God. And he's given them free range to fully enjoy, to freely enjoy every good gift that he has given them. And there's only just the one prohibition. There was one tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was the one that they could not reach out their hand and take. He says of that tree, you shall not eat for the day you do it. You shall surely die. Do you trust me? Do you trust me that I am? doing all things for your good? Do you trust me that I'm not withholding anything that you might need for happiness and holiness? Then don't eat of this tree. Because if you do, you'll die. Implicit within that is if you don't, if you would pass this test, if you would live in obedience to me, you'll live. And Adam, this one, who is the representative of the whole of humanity, There was a test laid out before him. He could have won us eternal life. Things wouldn't be the way that they are. Now, lest you think they would have gone differently if you were there. No, they would have gone bad a whole lot quicker, I reckon. But we don't know how long this lasted. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, we find that there's someone else there in the garden. He's referred to as a serpent. Now, when we get to Genesis, or excuse me, we get to Revelation 12, 9, we find that this serpent is also a great dragon. He's the devil. He's Satan. He's the accuser. He's the enemy of God, and he's the enemy of those who have been made in the image of God. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And we we know that he was a once glorious angel. That he too was perfect and sinless and powerful and holy. And then he rebelled. He he led a rebellion against God. And he was cast down from heaven. Now this text, it doesn't answer for us. Frankly, nowhere in scripture are you going to find an answer for how, how does this happen? How does evil come forth from perfectly holy beings? You see, we're going to find out where Adam and Eve... Fell. They were tempted by this one who had also fallen, but we don't know. How does evil come from good? And we're reminded that the scripture doesn't exist to answer our every single curiosity. Every question that man can dream up, there's some things that God says, that's not for you to know. But that the scripture does exist that the people of God would know everything we need to know for a life of perfect And holy communion with him. And what we do see here is that this serpent, he was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. God made this serpent. This means that he is not eternal. 
He is in no way equal with God. You'll recall that last week when we were talking about those great heresies that would seek to turn the word Jesus Christ into just one among many gods. And I told you that we see right there evidence in John 1 beside the fact that he calls him God, the one who was with God and himself God, that it also makes clear that there was nothing that was made that was not made through him. That's what it means to be God is that you're the one who made everything that is. Well, this serpent, this great dragon, Satan, the devil, he himself was made. He was created by God. Now, God, as I said, created him good. God didn't make him evil. God did not tempt him to evil. God did not entice or endorse the evil that was in him. And yet we know that God was still sovereign over him even after the fall. I want you to think about the words that Jesus spoke to the apostle Peter. He said, Satan has asked me that he might sift you. Think about the whole book of Job. As this prince of the demons must come and present himself before God. And God is always setting boundaries. This far you may go and no further. And so as we go into this text together, you must remember that this is a serpent that God has created in a place that God has created going only as far as God would allow him. And so if you would allow me to say it with as much reverence as possible, this is God's devil. And we read here that the serpent spoke to the woman. And in case you're wondering, yes, I really believe that the serpent spoke. I don't believe that this is some sort of an allegory or some type of a mythical explanation as to where evil came from or how man could be enticed to sin or why we're afraid of snakes and why they slither on their bellies the way that they do. I believe this is a historical account of a thing that really happened 6,000 years ago. There was a serpent there and he spoke and why wouldn't he be able to? If we can read in Mark 5 that Jesus cast a legion of demons into a bunch of pigs, why could not the prince, the captain of the demons, take hold of a serpent and cause that serpent to speak? And we realize then as we see this interaction between the serpent and the woman that evil is not just hasn't just come into the earth through natural consequence or some impersonal force of some sort that There's a personal being who is there enticing the woman. Now, Eve doesn't appear to be afraid. For some reason, Eve is not afraid of this serpent. Why would she be? All she had ever known was goodness in the garden. And I have to imagine, in addition to this, she knew that her husband was the one who had been tasked by God to have dominion over all the creation. He named them all. So she had no reason to be afraid of them. But then the woman finds the serpent speaking. And it's at this point that I wish I could do accents because I imagine I'm hearing this this very proper and, and, and pleasing voice coming out of the serpent. I don't think he bore his teeth and snarled. I think he spoke very sweetly to her and called her nice names like pretty lady and, 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 and sweet thing and my, my dear He says, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God had said. We know that. 
Going back to Genesis 2, he said, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden. I created these all for you. Go and enjoy. That's the message of God to his people. Go and enjoy. I've given you all these things. But the serpent is seeking to misrepresent God's word. More than that, he's seeking to misrepresent God's character. That's what he's doing. He's impugning and attacking the character of God because that's his tactic. He seeks to make God seem harsh and restrictive. He's like a five-year-old little boy that yells at his parents, you never give me anything good. As they run off to their room with a Nintendo and a bed and clothes and shoes and food that they have prepared for them. But this is his tactic to, to take the one thing that God has put a prohibition on and only to fixate upon that instead of all the rest that was there. It's why we find our hearts at times grumbling against God. God, why have you called me to set this one day and seven apart? Shouldn't my time be mine? Can't I just go and do what I want to do? And he says, yes, I've given you six days. And this one I've called you to set apart and it's for your good. It's not restrictive. It's not harsh. And when he says that you're to give of your, your money and your resources and your gifts back to him. God, you never give me anything good. You never let me have any fun. So this, this was his tactic to these people that literally woke up in paradise. They never had a single need until God created them. And as soon as they became aware of the need, he was there meeting it in the way that only he can. But this guy, this serpent, this devil, he is sneaky. And scripture says that he's more crafty than any other. And this is, of course, speaking to, to the, the power, the personality, the, the one who is in the serpent. Serpents aren't particularly smart. I think dolphins are smarter than serpents, probably. Or, I don't know, raccoons seem pretty smart. But it's, it's talking about the one who is represented there. He's, he's a liar. He's a, the father of lies. That's how he works. And so the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you catch that? Did you catch the subtle shift in the way that Eve rehearsed what God had said? Now listen, we went to a conference a while back where we were working through a chapter from the London Baptist Confession and one of the speakers there, Bodie Bauckham, he, he warned us, and I think it's a fair warning, he warned us that we, we can't have sin happening before the fall. The fall has not yet happened, and yet we see the serpent. His tactics are, they seem to be working as he's, he's luring the woman, and she's saying here, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say neither shall you touch it. He said don't eat it or you will die. They could have done anything they wanted with this tree. They could have had a picnic under it. They could have climbed it. They could have enjoyed its shade. He said, don't eat it. But you see, this is the way that it works. There's a thought that is planted in our head that God is not totally good and, and generous with us, that he's harsh and restrictive. And then all of a sudden we start making laws and rules and commandments that he didn't even make. His tactic is working. And we see how these minor changes to God's word, how drastically they change the way that we think about him. 
can make a massive difference in our theology just by twisting and not holding to what God actually said. How often do I say that to you when we gather together on Sunday morning that we want to know what God actually meant by what he actually said, not what you think you remember he might have said, not what you would have said if you were God. What did God actually say? But then the serpent says to the woman, verse four, you will not surely die. So, so now the serpent just outright refutes what God has said. And he still attacking the character of God. Not only is God harsh and restrictive, but he's untrustworthy. You can't trust what he's saying to you. And in addition to this, this would have been an, an, this enticing thing. The idea that I can do whatever I want without consequences. That was the one consequence. The, the one prohibition was don't take of that fruit. The consequence would be to die. And he said, well, that's not there anymore. God has lied to you. He has misled you. He's, he's sought to keep you in a bubble. The serpent went on, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, this isn't entirely wrong. Experientially, they would come to the knowledge of evil. They were seeking to gain knowledge outside of God. That is sin, that he is the author of all truth, the source of all wisdom, that to try and gain knowledge of anything outside of God is sin. So he's he's enticing her with this and he's telling her something that's partly true. When you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will know good from evil. But what he doesn't tell her is the cost. The great cost of this more than this though they were already like God they were made in the image and the likeness of God had they persisted in obedience to God someday they would have found themselves glorified and greater than the angels but they were jealous for something that was already theirs they wanted to grab hold of something that was already theirs if they would have just walked in obedience to God and they wanted to get it in a different way. And so we look at these people who bore the Imago Dei, the image of God, unbroken, unsoiled, in ways that we have never known. And we've got the serpent there. And he's again portraying God as selfish, as if the only way God can be God is if he can keep the rest of you down. As if God's worried about competition. As if he has to withhold what is for our good in order to make himself glorious. And how often have I come to you and pleaded with you to see from Scripture that God's glory and our good are perfectly aligned. God does not obtain glory. God does not manifest his glory in ways that aren't for the good of his people. So the question at hand now is, who would these people trust? Would they trust God who had created and and communed with and given them every good thing? Would they be satisfied with him? Would they receive only that which they he gave them on his own terms? Or would they join the enemy? Would they join the serpent? Would they join the, the devil in his rebellion against God? And that's what this is, dear friends. This is an invitation to war. Would you join my army? As I seek to make war against the God who has created everything that is. And I remind you that in order to go to war against God, you don't have to deny his existence. 
You don't have to curse his name. You just have to doubt his character. To doubt that he is holy and completely for you and grow to distrust him. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. You see, she was attracted to this tree. It was an attractive tree. It was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And immediately we see here in chapter three that just because we have an impulse towards something, just because we believe that we have a natural desire towards something does not in and of itself make it good. And within the bounds that it's only God's word that sets parameters around where we can and cannot go. So the question is, would she trust her own eyes? Would she trust the lies of this enemy? Would she trust the word of God? You see this. Even for the people that walked with God in his garden, it still came down to a question of, but do you trust his word? The same issue we have today. Will you trust his word? Or will you trust your own thoughts and your own mind and even your own eyes, your own belly, the lies of this one that pretends to be your friend? Will you trust the word of God more than anything else? So what does she do? She took of its fruit, that is the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The most expensive meal in the history of the universe. Truly, in the words of St. Paul, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the glory of God for created things. They sold out the glory of God for a piece of fruit. Lest you shake your head in disbelief. Shall we consider all the ways that we have distrusted God for less than a piece of fruit? Now, it doesn't matter how much they claim to love God and trust God at this moment. You realize that. If you love me, you will obey my commandments is what the Lord said. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I tell you to do? Again, because it's a question of character, not about the law. It's not about the fruit. It's about do I trust the character of God? Do I trust that he knows what is good and has given me only that which is good? And that anything that he says is off limits is only going to lead to pain and hurt and destruction and separation and death. Don't say that you love God and you trust God and you follow Christ as Lord while looking dead into his word and the things that he has warned you against and plunging headlong into them. Now, like all fruit, I have to imagine it says that the fruit was good to eat. So I have to imagine that when Eve bit into this, it was delicious on her lips. Because it was good enough that she turned around and gave some to her husband, right? She tasted it and she didn't immediately spit it out. She didn't holler at Adam, run. I've made a mistake. She said, this is good. You should try some. It was sweet on her lips, but can you imagine how sour it was in her gut? How sour it sat in her stomach? 
I think God gives me, I think God gives me a taste of this in my own life. I've told you before about my own battles with gluttony. That's the biblical word for it. That's the name for this besetting sin in my life. It's gluttony. And I will eat and I will eat and I will eat. And each bite is a little less sweet, a little less enjoyable than the last. And eventually I regret it. I can't imagine the, just how this thing sat like a rock in her belly, but it was too late. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. I know I say naked weird. Y'all like a long A? Na- naked? No. <laughs> I'll go back to naked. Thank you. can't get an amen, but I can get a no for naked. <laughs> Their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. Immediately guilt and shame came upon them. We ended chapter two. Genesis chapter two ends with the man and, and his wife, the man and the woman. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And if you've been here on any Wednesday night when we work through creation together, I told you that I think this has more. This is a picture with regards to the man and his wife. This is a picture of more than just physical intimacy. And this is more than just a picture of you can see me naked and I can see you naked. And there's I'm not embarrassed about the way I look because these were perfect people. And so they were. They were as fit, I guess, as anybody's ever been fit. But even beyond that, they weren't sinful and judgmental of each other because they perfectly loved each other. And it doesn't matter what you look like when you love someone. You can look at them in, 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 you know, as they are and, and you delight in them. And he sang this love song to her at last. This is Isha because she's come from Ish. But it was also a picture of this transparency in the way that marriage is meant to be. There's no secrets in marriage. I mean, look, no man ever fully knows himself, of course. He can't even, you couldn't fully reveal yourself to your wife, even if you wanted to. You don't know yourself as fully as, as you should, but we don't have secrets. We don't have this need to hide from each other or to be distrusting of each other. But suddenly we see this as they, we're going to see that they distrust God and they fear God. But I think there's a picture of hiding from each other. I'm not safe around you any longer. It doesn't say that Adam suddenly got a a belly and Eve just aged a whole bunch immediately and didn't look cute any longer. But there was this spiritual battle now that's fixing to go on between the man and his wife that he he loved this gift from God. And so what do they do? They try to cover their nakedness with with fig leaves. You see, there are these, these two ditches that exist with regards to man and the law of God. One of them is legalism. It's setting boundaries where God's not set them. And then thinking of the law as a thing that we've got to climb to get to God. And perhaps even imposing upon other people our own standards. And so it's this, it's this wrong thinking about the law of God. And then there's antinomianism, which is lawlessness. It's just throwing away the law of God and living the way whatever way you want. But the reality is those things both come from the same root. I recommended to you before a book by Sinclair Ferguson called the whole Christ. 
I would encourage you to consider giving it a, giving it a read because it, it speaks beautifully to this because it's the same root. It's the root of distrusting God. It's seeing God as a harsh taskmaster and I've got to earn his favor and I've got to earn his love. Sadly, many of us have this picture of God as father because of earthly fathers. Made you feel like you're only in my good graces as long as you pass these tests and, and meet my standards. But what happens then is you, you try to earn God's favor. You try to climb the ladder. And eventually you realize, I can't climb the ladder. I can't make things right. I can't get to God. And so then what do you do? You abandon the law altogether. You say, well, then forget it. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, they had broken the law. And so what do they do? They, they try their own means, their own ways to cover themselves with something that God has made, namely fig leaves. They're attempting in their own powers to fix what has been broken. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Don't don't miss this in the middle of all this evil, in the middle of all this sorrow. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How much would you give to be there? A favorite song for many Baptist type folks is in the garden. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. God's in the garden and you want to yell at Adam and Eve and say, God's still there. Go to him. He made you and he loved you and he can fix this. He can fix it. Go be with him. Just run to him. Tell him what you did. He's gracious. Don't you see all that he's done for you? But instead, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is insanity. God made the trees. But what do we do? We take the things that God has created, the things that God has given us, and we use them as a barrier between us and him and the tactics of the enemy and our own sin and shame and guilt. They convince us that God is one to be feared. And so we run instead of coming to the only one that could fix what we just broke. Don't you see this in the lives of men that refuse to come to the gathering of the saints because God is there. And he might see into my soul and say something to me. Or even those that might gather in a place like this, you would not dare go and be alone with him naked. I mean, like, not physically, but spiritually open and naked before God with his word before you because he might see me and he might say something to me. And so we create just a loud world where we don't ever have to be alone with him. We don't have to hear his voice. How many of us could say, God, I heard you coming. And so I just turned up the radio and I kept Netflix on and I and I continued to drink and play on the Internet and consume myself with stupid games or work or money. God, I heard you coming and I was afraid. And so I hid here. But the Lord God said to him, you see the grace of God as he calls to him. Where are you? The man didn't run to God, but God called him out to himself. And we see the grace of God. And God knew where the man was. But he calls him to himself. He says, come, 
come. You, you, you know, as you get to the end of this chapter, he's calling the man to himself so he can clothe him. Not so they can spank him or destroy him. He's calling him to himself. And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's not the, that's not the question that I asked. He doesn't answer. He never answers the question. You're going to find out. But he does confess his fear. That there's something in that at least. God, I'm, I'm afraid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? What's naked? You've never had clothes on. What is naked? That's not a word. It may not even be a word the way I pronounce it. It's not a word. You've never had clothes. Who told you that that was a problem? I made you this way and you weren't ashamed. He said, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? Who told you you were naked? There's an innocence. I think we see a picture of this in the innocence of of babies, you know, babies, they don't care that they don't have clothes on. And I'm not just talking about like bed babies. Even once they get a little bit older, right? They, you know, like little toddler types, you, you let them out of the bathroom and they're like, finally, I, I'm out of the bathtub and finally I don't have clothes on. I like this. This is a better feeling. And they run through the house and nobody, number one, unless you're demented, and there's plenty of people in this world that are demented like this, but nobody looks at the baby. It's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's horrible. This baby is naked. And the baby doesn't feel any shame. This is just, this is just the way I am, man. But, but then maybe as they grow up a little bit, it takes someone else to come to them and say, hey, there's perversion in the world and there's lust and, 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 and distorted desires in the world. So you can't. You, you need to put clothes on. You can't be naked. We've got to teach them to be ashamed of that. And it's, no, listen, it is appropriate. We shouldn't be walking around naked. We should clothe ourselves because of Sin and because of our fallen nature and because of the, the, the demented minds of men and sin, we shouldn't. We should have clothes on. But we lose that innocence. And we see, I think, a picture of that innocence with Adam and Eve. But you recognize nobody had to tell Adam he was naked. This tender and previously completely untouched by sin conscience. You've never lived in a world that wasn't swimming in sin. We were conceived in sin. We were brought forth in iniquity. The world has always been stained by sin. From as early as we can remember, we were participating in sin and had our conscience. And then over time, perhaps, it's gotten seared and hardened. And, and, and we've learned to reject it and to silence our conscience. He had never known this, this man, Adam. And for the first time, he had awareness of guilt and experiential knowledge of shame and, and evil. Nobody had to tell him he was naked. He looked down. And he said, I'm, I'm, I don't have clothes on. And this is a problem. So the man said. The woman whom you gave me, he said, what did somebody tell you you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat of. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. He's still not answering the question. He's just blaming the woman. But if you see beyond this, he's not really blaming the woman. He's blaming God. You gave me this woman. Yeah, and you were singing love songs to her earlier. Because she was perfect. The only woman in all the earth. You didn't know you wanted a woman. God, Adam didn't say, God, I need a wife. Would you consider meeting this need? 
God said it's not good that man would be alone. And I picture in my head Adam saying, I'm not alone. Look at all these animals I have. And he's saying, trust me. I will give you this need and then I will meet it in the only way that it should be met. He's saying, God, this woman that you gave me, she's the problem. And the woman's not going to get off the hook, is she? Because what is he turns to her and he asks her, but there is a proper ordering here. He was meant man was meant to be head of the woman. The Lord said, what is this thing that you have done? And what does she say? The devil made me do it, which, by the way, who created the devil? So really, this is all about God. God, you're the one that failed. You're the one that put us there. So skip down to verse 16. And we see the way that God responds to the woman. And he says, surely I'll multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, there's I've heard a lot of really interesting ways that men interact with this concept of her desire contrary to her husband. But if you look in Genesis four, seven, we see God warning Cain and he says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door and his desire is for you. It's it's this this control or or domineering or overbearing nature. Things are going to get twisted as the woman tries to Tries to take control, but it says here that the man, he shall rule over you. Now, the man should be head of the woman, but this too is a distorted and a broken way of the two relating to each other. We see it already in the fact that he's blaming her. He's blaming her for enticing him to sin. And we realize that their relationship, not only is it going to be one that is no longer marked by trust and transparency, it's going to be one that is marked by accusation and it's going to be disordered and full of strife and and enmity and and brokenness. And remember, I I told you at the start, I love Genesis three because it tells me the why things are the way that they are. And how many times do I have couples and they come to me and they want to tell me all the reasons that they believe their marriage is broken. And I say, this is why the answer is the gospel. The answer isn't for you to get a better wife. But he also says that childbearing is he's going to multiply the pain in childbearing. And any of you that have ever studied these first two chapters of Genesis, you know that God had given these creation ordinances to the man and to the woman that they were to. Uh, the Sabbath is one, the pattern that God had set and resting and in the fact that there was a, a sanctity in marriage in this bond that God had brought together. But in addition to this, Genesis one twenty eight. That God had said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That this was God's mandate, not just for the first couple, but to all couples who have come after. That our job is to be fruitful. We talked often about this, that we're to make a bunch of little gospel grenades. You don't just have the babies, you train them to fear God. To honor and represent God, because God's desire is the whole earth would be filled with these little image bears. And so now what God is saying is... In order for you to fulfill the ordinance that I have given you, it's going to come into great pain. It's going to be increasingly difficult to you. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened 
to the voice of your wife. This isn't saying that you can't take counsel from your wife. This isn't women shut up. This isn't a license for us when our wives try to tell us something to say, listen, last time a woman spoke and a man listened, we found ourselves in this mess. She was his perfect helpmate created by God. The problem was that he listened and he ate of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat. And he says, because you've done this, cursed is the ground because of you. You see Romans 8 and you see the whole creation groaning together under the pains of childbirth. The whole creation is not the way that it's supposed to be. Hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and landslides and everything else that we see going on in creation around us. It's a result of this, this man's sin. And he says, in pain you shall eat of it. That's the earth. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, you shall, it shall bring forth from you and you shall eat the plants of the field. So going back to that creation ordinance in Genesis 1, 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So not only is Eve's fulfillment of what God has called her to do increasingly difficult, but so is Adam's. The job that he has told him to take this garden, to take this perfect place and to extend it to the ends of the earth, both by subduing the earth and by filling it with a bunch of little babies that bear my image. Do you see it? Take the garden and make the whole earth the garden. Extend it to the ends of the earth. And now God's saying, because you have not trusted me, that's going to become a whole lot harder. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Labor is going to be hard and no longer fulfilling and, and fruitful and fun. It's difficult through these thorns and these thistles and great labor and sweat and pain and ultimately death. What did he say? You will die. The wages of sin is death. And from this moment forward, man and woman and every man and woman that came after them, they were on the slow march. The minute you are born, you begin to die. For 900 plus years, we see some of God's grace. This man would live. I don't know how old he was at this moment, but for 900 plus years, this man would live in this world that was stained and broken and difficult because of him. Whatever conflict arose within their marriage, they would live that out for 900 years. Whatever pains I feel at the age of 43 and not knowing if I can make it to 53, he lived to 900 plus. And we would see death right off, right off the bat, even amongst humanity as Cain would kill Abel. And beloved, I just, you, you cannot overstate the consequences of this act. You, you cannot overstate the cost of that fruit. And yet we see God's grace even here because he doesn't destroy the couple, does he? He doesn't destroy the couple. He doesn't wipe them out and say, well, that human experience, that didn't work. And he didn't wipe them out and start over again with a new couple. They would be allowed time, be allowed time to continue to enjoy God's good gifts and to carry out this thing that he has called them to do. We see evidence that Adam trusted in this promise from God in verse 20 when the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. If God had just killed them all, there would be no living, right? So obviously he trusted that God was going to give them time. But we know that death is more than just physical. 
We know the consequences of sin is more than just our bodies dying, aging and becoming sick and dying. We know that ultimately it's spiritual death. The death spoken of in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That while physical death might wait, the spiritual death was immediate. Look in verse 23. The Lord God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is a grace in and of itself. He says, lest the man reach out his hand and take from the fruit of the fruit of the tree of life and live. He's saying, lest man live forever spiritually dead and separated from me. I am going to guard the garden. I'm going to place these, my agents, my mighty angels with flaming swords to ensure that he can't. Not it's difficult to get back into the garden. It's impossible. And we see pictures of this, of, of course. We, we see pictures of this with the tabernacle and then the, the temple in Jerusalem. Is we recognize that it faces to the east, the door to this temple facing to the east. And that there within the temple, within the veil that leads into the Holy of Holies, woven into that curtain, there's the image of cherubim. And then within that place, over the mercy seat and the ark where God's presence comes to dwell amongst men, there are two cherubim with their wings extended over. And we recognize that even still as God came to dwell with Israel, we see this separation. We see the consequences of sin. God says, you can't come into my presence like this and live. You'll die. So I place these cherubim with flaming swords to prevent this thing from happening. Man separated from the presence of God, cast out of the garden. In the, in the words of John Milton, paradise was lost. They've joined forces with the enemy. They have joined forces with Satan. They've made war against God. They are now stained by sin and paradise is lost. And we, we would be tempted, I think, we would be tempted to come to this point and go, God, how, how could you put that tree there? And why couldn't you just make it ugly and gross looking? If it, if it meant death, why did you make it in such a way that it was enticing to the eyes and it was good for food? And why would you allow the serpent to show up like this? Or why didn't you just strike Adam and Eve blind? You did it to the people in Sodom. Why didn't you just strike them blind? Or why didn't you just show up in the garden earlier and lead them away from the serpent? Why didn't you kill the serpent when you saw him there doing these things? the sovereign God of the universe and all of this is yours and you're moving it all. What's the point? Well, beloved, I tell you that what we find in this text is a reminder that the goal, the ultimate end, the aim of it all was not the evil. Was not the death. It was not the separation. It was the praise of the glory of his grace. Because if you were paying attention, you recognize that I skipped down to Eve's curse. But before God gave Adam and Eve the curse, before he cast them out of the garden, he made them a promise. 
Now that promise came not in speaking to the man and to the woman. It came in his curse against the serpent because the reality is salvation is not ultimately about you. It's about the glory of God. That doesn't humble you, beloved. I don't know what will. The first promise of the gospel, the proto eangelion, it came when he cursed the enemy. But the timing is magnificent. Before the curse upon man and woman, before he cast them out of the garden, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Again, this is not an explanation of why snakes lost their limbs. I think maybe I think maybe the serpent was walking at that point. I don't know what it looked like. I heard one guy that said probably like the Geico. I don't know for sure what he looked like, but now there's a picture. Every time we see a snake slithering on the dust, it is a reminder that number one, God has a promise, even in evil. The curse of God is real upon that serpent. That he has won a victory over that serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, as you work through, and time is short, so I can't unfold this, unpack this the way I would like, but as you look through the story of redemptive history, you realize that all the seeds come from the same woman. Scripture tells us that Cain himself belonged to the evil one. See, what what the serpent wanted to do in this moment was If he could not destroy God, he could turn all those made in God's image against him. Again, I say he was leading a rebellion. And if you can capture the mom and the dad, you've got all the rest. And yet what God is promising here is there will always be those offspring who have not joined in your rebellion, who I call back to myself and I place enmity in their heart towards you. I will change their desires. I will change their affections. I will cause them to be born again so that they don't trust you. They don't join you in the rebellion. They they learn to hate you, to see you as you are. And we see this playing out through the whole of Scripture, through the whole of Scripture. And yet he says, I want you to notice that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That this is building not towards some plethora of offspring, but one. One singular offspring who is called the he. That he is the one who will not crush the head of the serpent's offspring, but the head of the serpent himself. Now, you would have expected what God to do in that moment was to shout to Eve, Eve, there's a serpent, step on his head. Or perhaps to Adam, Adam, that serpent has deceived your wife. He has led you into losing paradise quick step on his head, but they weren't equipped because this one that was going to come. He must be capable of stomping, crushing, killing the serpent while only himself sustaining a bruised heel. He had to be fully man. He had to be a man to be a representative, to be the second Adam, to undo all that we had broken in the fall. And beloved, we were there. In Adam, all sinned. 
He had to be fully man in order to represent us. He had to be fully man in order to have a heel that could be bruised. But you notice that the bruising of the heel, that's a wound, comes in the bruising of the head, which is death. These two things weren't coincidental. That the bruising of the heel comes as he stomps upon the head of the serpent. But because he is not only the offspring of woman, why offspring of woman and not offspring of man? So that he would not inherit the guilt and the sin of Adam. So this one who is the offspring of woman, we know that he is also the word. The Holy Spirit himself has overshadowed the woman, brought forth this one who is fully God and fully man, so that when he steps upon the head of the serpent, the, her, the serpent is crushed and he is only bruised. Well, he would die three days later. He would rise again in victory. And we, we, we see this as we come to the New Testament, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We no longer need have fear of death because of this one who has conquered the enemy. This one who had his heel bruised as he tasted death on our behalf, but because he was the word, the eternal one, he came out victorious. And that the way that he did this, scripture tells us, is by taking the record of our debt, the sin that we had committed, this, this enmity that existed between us and God and nailing it to that cross where he died. Putting to open shame the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the prince of demons himself. Putting them to shame and his victory over them. So that we too may someday enter in to this paradise. So to one, the captain of the angel armies. This, this one who orders and, and controls. And the one that all the angels bow down and worship towards. So that he could approach that gate and say, there with me, put down your swords. That everything that had been lost in the fall, everything that had been lost in that garden, that this one who would come and he himself would be tempted, not in a precious garden, not in a place filled with food, not with a helpmate like a wife, but alone in the wilderness, filled with the spirit, tempted by the evil one. That he would overcome and then he himself would kneel down in a garden and cry out to his father. If there's any other way than this, let's do that way. And yet he would overcome on our behalf. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam would win. And just as we were in that first Adam, and because of that, we too were born in sin and guilt and shame and destined for death. That in this second Adam, Christ Jesus our Lord, we will reign. We will live forever. We can enjoy even now purpose in this life, that our, our work doesn't have to be meaningless and fruitless, that, that marriages can be restored and that we don't have to hide ourselves from God and from each other any longer, that there's immediate benefits to this even now as we wait for that final day. And that this is the story of Christmas. This is why the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you, as always, Father, for this people. As I routinely say, you have made them different. 
and you are making them different. Uh, we thank you for the, these first glimpses of Christmas, the first pictures of the gospel seen right there in the very beginning. We thank you, Father, that before the curse, before the casting out, before the real consequences of sin, that you were there with the promise and the hope of the one who was to come. And we thank you, Father, that he has come. We thank you that he has, in fact, crushed the head of the enemy, even though he continues to work. We know that his final destruction is yet to come, and we long for that day. So, Father, I pray that you help us to live in light of that hope. God, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.